Our sermon today is taken from Philemon. This is the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to, to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me and to you. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he, he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. For he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you, of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. I profess my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus is the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Os. Friends, let's pray one more time before we enter into the preaching of God's word. Father, through this narrative that we uh, see in the letter of Philemon that Paul wrote to Philemon, our imperatives and commands that are almost inhuman to do, it's so difficult. And I pray that as we see them, we don't shy away from them, but rather we seek to pursue them and obey them and remind, let it remind us, Father, if it does remind us of any weakness that we have, let that drive us to the cross so that we can get up and obey it again. Speak deeply into our hearts. Let our, let our minds and our souls uh, take your word as it is. And Father, help us to walk accordingly to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So friends, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, uh, maybe three or four weeks or five weeks, we've been going through a series that's called The Priesthood of All Believers. 
That series is just a time when we chose a few passages in the Bible where it's clear that in the scripture, we are called, all of us, to minister, Christians, to minister the gospel to one another. It, it reminds us, uh, we're, we're called to remind each other of who Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, where our identity lies. That's all uh, uh, the love and care that we owe one another. It's not just the job of the elders and the deacons or the church staff to do that. Every Christian everywhere is tasked to live out and speak the gospel to one another. Now, we're done with that series, the, the priesthood of all believers. Um, but before we start our next series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we're going to do next week, the beginning of 2019, I wanted to take this last Sunday of 2018 to go through the book of Philemon, the whole book. Why? Because what we see here is a concept of the priesthood of all believers that we've been studying for the past four to five weeks in living color. Paul is actually showing us what the doctrine of priesthood of all believers looks like in real life. The book of Philemon is, is just one short letter, as we read all of it just now. It's 25 verses, and, and it's a letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. Why was he in prison? Because he was sharing the gospel, and the Romans didn't really like that. So Paul wrote a few letters in prison, and he sent out uh, these letters, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon is, is one of them that he wrote at the same time and sent out at the same time. And, and the letter of Philemon, after Paul wrote it, he gave it to a guy named Anesimus to bring it to a guy named Philemon. Now, you got to know who they are if you want to study the letter well. So if you look at the letter and you study it, Anesimus was Philemon's ex-servant, kind of like the helpers that we have at home here in our culture in Indonesia, okay? Philemon was a wealthy Christian that was led to Christ by Paul himself. When you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that. And he's wealthy enough to have a big house where a church, a house church, meets in it. Look at verses 1 to 2. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So there's a church meeting in Philemon's house. Now, now why was Anesimus, uh, Philemon's ex-servant, uh, no longer working for Philemon? Because one day, Anesimus decided to steal something from Philemon's house and run away. The servant Anesimus robbed from the master Philemon. And it was during this getaway that Anesimus somehow, by God's sovereignty, met Paul, uh, Paul in his house arrest. And Paul preached the gospel to Anesimus in prison and led Anesimus to Christ. Look at uh, verse 10. I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child, Anesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, obviously, he didn't give birth to Anesimus in prison, right? Father here means spiritual father. It's another way of saying that he led Anesimus to Christ in prison. And now Paul is sending Anesimus back to Philemon with this letter. Asking for what? Asking that Philemon would forgive Anesimus for his wrongs. And we see a lot here in this letter about what ministering and applying the gospel to one another looks like. Okay, you know, perhaps we've heard so many sermons about fellowship, and, and I think, if you're anything like me, you're starting to feel a bit discouraged. Because no matter how good the sermons may be, no matter how challenged or excited your heart was after the sermon, in the long run, for some reason, we feel, don't we, that none of our relationships has actually changed. In the long run, our conversations that we have with other Christians, they're not really that deep. We still feel a sense of disconnectedness. We still hold grudges and we still gossip behind each other's back. Bad blood still exists. Even for Christians that's been in the same church for years. Why is that? 
Well, there's a concept here in the letter uh, uh, to Philemon that I want to point out that underlies throughout the whole letter. And I think it, it's not going to be the miracle cure, okay? But I think, I hope that at least it'll help us to understand where that lack of intimacy and oneness comes from. And hopefully it'll open up the horizons and show us what kind of possible relationships that we can have in especially church context. Now I'm gonna, to explain this concept, I'm gonna use the original Greek term, which I never do, but for this time I'm deciding to do that because really there's no English equivalent that quite grasps this concept, okay? And that term is koinonia, koinonia, not kinokunia, okay, koinonia, okay? There's three things I wanna point out. Point one, the command for koinonia. Point two, the path toward koinonia. And point three, the foundation for koinonia. The command, the path toward, and the foundation for koinonia. All right, first one, the command for koinonia. So in the letter, we see Philemon here, Paul describing Philemon, not only as the owner of the house, as like the one that's hosting the house church, but also as some sort of spiritual leader in that house church. Look at verses four to six. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The saints there is just referring to the Christians. Christians are saints because you're washed, you're clean, you're pure by the blood of Christ. Lord, you for, the, for all this, the love you have for all the saints referring to the Christians in his house church. I thank you for your faith uh, that you have toward the Lord Jesus there. And I pray that the sharing of your faith with those Christians may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. A few things to point out. Look at verses four to five. Paul thanks God for Philemon because he has love toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints. He's not just a host. He's not just the owner of the house. He has some kind of spiritual leadership role in that house church. You see it again in verse six. He participates in the sharing of his faith with all the saints. Now, the English word sharing is Greek koinonia. Paul says Anesimus participates in the sharing of faith with these Christians. What, what is this sharing? Sharing of what? Now, the English word sharing doesn't quite capture it. Okay, the idea here is not just sharing the gospel or sharing one's possessions, but more in the sense of sharing yourself. Okay, a commentator described it as an interchange of hearts. Philemon's faith in Christ caused him to feel so united with the Christians in that house church that he shared himself with them. Philemon had an interchange of hearts with them. That's koinonia. That's what Paul is thankful for. Okay, but what does koinonia look like? Okay, look at verse 7. Paul gives an example here. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints, again, the Christians in your house church, have been refreshed through you. Pay closer attention to that verse, verse 7. Paul said, he derives much joy and comfort from Philemon. Why? What did Philemon ever do to Paul? Nothing. The reason why Paul felt joy and comfort, look at the end of verse 7, is because Philemon refreshed the hearts of the saints, of the Christians in his house church. In other words, when Philemon refreshed the Christians in his house church, Paul felt joy and comfort. You see? Why? Koinonia. There is such deep love and union that Paul, interchange of hearts that Paul feels with other Christians, that anything that was done to them, it's as if it was done to him. 
So when they feel refreshed, he feels joy. When they feel comforted, he feels comforted. Vice versa. When they're sad, he's sad. When they're hurt, he's hurt. That's koinonia. Here, here's another example that might could be helpful. I feel koinonia. I hope I'm going to say that word right as we go on the sermon. I'm going to mess up on point. I feel koinonia with my children. Elena, my eldest daughter, fell down recently, and she busted her lip. And when I saw it, I immediately and very noticeably felt pain and sadness in my own heart. I didn't fall down. She did. But why did I feel pain? Because I was emotionally affected by what happened to her. Her pain was my pain, you see. Koinonia can be found in the empty space between a loving husband toward his wife. There's a weird verse in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul commands husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Why say that? Why not say you have to do right by your wife because that's the moral right thing to do? He didn't say that. He said, love your wives as you love your own bodies. What Paul is saying is you have to fall in such deep love with your wife that what happens to her is as if it's happening to you. See, koinonia leads you to care for someone, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because you feel such deep interchange of selves with that person, right? I don't protect Elena from falling down because that's the moral right thing to do. You see? I protect Elena from falling down because when she hurts, I hurt. No one would look at my annual budget and say, wow, man, you spent a lot of money on Elena's food this year. What a good moral guy. <laughs> they would never say that. Why? Because I'm not feeding my child because it's the good and moral thing to do. I feed my child because if my child starves, I'm sad. You see? There's an interchange. There's a oneness that I feel. You see, I think this is what's missing in Christian fellowship. I don't doubt that Christians and churches try really hard to love one another. I don't doubt that we work hard to care for one another. I don't doubt that we're trying to really hard to minister the gospel to one another. But I think most Christians, including myself, do it because it's the right thing to do, which isn't a bad motive. That's a good motive. Do it because it's the right thing to do. But I think God longs for us to get to a much greater level of relationship with one another. What causes the cap? in relationships at church. You've sensed that, right? In every church that you've been to, including CCC. What causes that cap? Well, I wanna say it's because we think God is only concerned with what we do for one another and not how we feel toward one another. I think that we think that's enough. As long as I do good by one another, how I actually feel about them is an optional luxury. It's like when Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another, we think what he really means is the world will know that you are my disciples by the way you do things for one another. That's it. Now, of course, that's a huge part of it, but that's not only it. Love includes more than just your doing. It includes your heart, a sense of oneness. Love is always central to God's laws. It's not optional. We just read uh, the Ten Commandments. I didn't plan this, but I'm glad it worked out that way. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? We read it in our statement of faith too. Love God with all your heart, uh, 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 soul, uh, uh, strength, and love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay? And love others like yourself. In these commandments, Jesus says, in these commandments, 
the law of God depend on? What does that mean in, these, in this loving, the law of God depends on? What, it, what does it mean, the law? The law is the Ten Commandments, okay? And that depends on how you love God and love others. What is Jesus saying? He's saying if you just perfectly, truly love God, deeply love God and others, you'll obey the Ten Commandments. Think about it. If you truly love God, you won't have any other gods before him. Commandment number one. If you truly love God, you won't worship false gods. Commandment number two. If you truly love God, you won't take God's name in vain. Commandment number three. See, if you just love God, you do the law. That's why Jesus said all of the law depends on your love for God. Sin isn't just failing to be doers of the law. That's true. It is. But sin is ultimately failing to be a lover of God. Love is central. And love others like yourself. If you truly perfectly love others like you love yourself, you'd obey the other commandments. If you truly love others, you won't kill them. Some of the husbands and wives here are like, you sure about that? You know what I mean. If you truly love others like yourself, you won't steal from them, commandment number eight. You won't bear false witness, commandment number nine. You won't covet them, commandment number ten. See, if you love others like yourself, you'd obey law six to ten. So when you break law six to ten, you're not ultimately, it's not only because you fail to be doers of the law, it's because you fail to love others. You see, Jesus in the great commandment is saying this, loving God and others is central to the law. The law depends on it because if you truly love others like yourself, your motivation of why you don't steal from them is not just because stealing from them is the wrong thing to do, but because why would you steal from yourself? You see, you wouldn't covet and be jealous toward them, not just because feeling jealousy in your heart is a negative and immoral thing, that's true, but it's greater than that because why would you feel jealous toward yourself? If their success is your success, if their failure is your failure? Now, some of us that are more pragmatic may think this. What does it matter how I feel when I do it? As long as I just do it to others, how I feel is irrelevant, right? Well, if that's your paradigm for relationships, you'll never bust through that invisible cap we talked about earlier that I know you feel. I know you feel in your relationships because, see, if your motivation to act out in love toward others is just because of due diligence, if, if due diligence is the only motivation, the intensity and the extent in which you act out in love will begin to fizzle out when? Once you feel like you've done your due diligence. You see? If, if I've accomplished the moral duty of loving them, and if you feel like you've done it, then there's not much motivation left. But if the motivation in how you and why you act out in love to others is not just because of due diligence, is not just because it's the moral right thing to do, it is that, but it's greater than that. If, if because what you do to them is actually felt by yourself, like Paul who felt joy when the Christians in Philemon's house were being refreshed, if that's your motivation, koinonia, then there won't be a limit because their well-being is your well-being. Their success is your success. Their pain is your pain. There'll be no limit to what you're willing to do for one another. I think this is a good convicting thing to ask to ourselves as we interrelate here in CCC. When we welcome newcomers into our community, okay, there's a visitor, they're coming in, they don't know anybody, and we're welcoming them in. Are we just doing it because that's the right thing to do? Or is it because you feel such deep heart interchange with them that their loneliness hurts you? 
when you counsel people on their problems, are you doing it just because that's the next right thing to do? Or because their distress actually aches you? When we lead our ministries, our children ministry, our community groups, our Bible studies, or when we preach, Gray and I have to ask this question to ourselves. When we're doing all this stuff, why are we doing it? Because it's the right moral thing to do? Or is it because the refreshment that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ experience through our ministries of the word actually lead us to experience deep joy and comfort as well? The command, see, isn't just to act out in love towards one another, but it's you to get to a point of koinonia with one another to where what's done to them is felt by you. That's the level of oneness Christ expects of his people. But that's a big ask. That's a tall order, okay? How do we do that? Second point, the path toward koinonia. This is a bit tricky, but I want to take us a look at this weird tension that Paul brings up in verses 8 and 9. Paul says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Verse 9, yet, but for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Understanding this, key, this, this tension is key to moving toward koinonia. See, on one side of the tension, verse 8, Paul is saying to Philemon that for him to forgive Anesimus is not optional. <laughs> Look at verse 8 again. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I'm commanding you to do what is required. See, forgiveness is a command Philemon is required to do. Who requires it? I am bold in Christ to command you. Paul says in verse 8, Jesus is commanding you to move toward that. You know what this does? This frees us from emotionalism. Emotionalism says, I'm only going to forgive when it feels authentic. I'm only going to move toward forgiveness when when I feel like I want to. Unless my emotions approve it, I won't do it. People today think that's freedom. No, that's being imprisoned and limited by your emotions. Paul is saying, Christians, you're free from that. You're free from that. Your feelings are not your ultimate authority. Christ is. Whether you want to or not, this is a required command. You move toward that. It is not up to you. Now, some might say, But isn't that the opposite of what koinonia is? You just described that it's not just about the external doing, it's about you actually wanting to do it, which is why we have the other side of the tension. Let's read now verses 8 and 9 together. Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, verse 9, yet, but, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. This is important. See, in one hand, you're required, yet in the other hand, Paul says, for love's sake, I can't force you. I can't make you. See, there's some things in life that if you do it just because someone else asks you to, then you haven't actually done it. I'm going to try this analogy. might be a weird one, okay? So when Elena was a year old, there's this cartoon. I'm sure it still exists. We don't watch it anymore. There's this cartoon called The Backyardigans. Who knows The Backyardigans? Parents out there? Okay. It's, it's, uh, and she loved it. Every time she was crying in a cab, we would, you know, give her the iPhone. Yes, we're those parents, okay? We judged those parents before. Now we have kids. We're like, I'm sorry I ever judged you for doing that. Here's your, here's backyard again, okay? And, and it's, it's children, animal characters. There's three boys and two girls. I don't know why they're in animal characters. Have a kid. You make sense. Um, so... Three boys, two girls, and animal characters. And this one episode stuck in my head because Elena just loved it. Okay, so three boys, the three boys were throwing a hula party. 
in a beach. Some of you might know this one. I don't know if you do. Uh, the, they're, they're throwing a hula party at a beach, and then, much to their surprise, a volcano started to erupt, and it was going to ruin their hula party. So what does one do when they see a volcano erupt? They go into the volcano to see what's going on, right? That's what we all do. <laughs> so so the, the, three, the three guys went into the volcano, and they saw these two girls sitting in the volcano, and they're, they're just angry. And it's causing the volcano to erupt, and they're saying, get us what we want. Get us what we want, or else this volcano will erupt and ruin your party. And the boys panicked. They're like, just tell me. Okay, we'll do it. Tell me. Tell me what you want. In other words, what's, what's the requirement here? What's the command? Okay? But they won't tell him. This is the thing. It's stuck in my head. We know what we want. We know what we don't want, so get us what we want. That's all they would say over and over and over again. You've got to figure it out. And it's so annoying, right? All the fathers are watching this and projecting their own marital issues to it. They're like, just, just tell them what you want, lady. We can't read your mind, right? <laughs> Which is probably what I felt, okay? So, so the two boys, right, they're getting all these extravagant things, the rare gems, huge statues, and none of them is what the girls wanted. All they kept saying is, get us what we want. We know what you want. We know what we don't want. Get us what we want. And the boys are just like, just tell us. Just tell us what you want. And all of a sudden, the third boy that's been quiet the whole time, said this, I think I know what they want. And he stepped up and he says, hey girls, we're about to throw a hula party. And I've actually been meaning to ask you girls to join. Would you girls like to join? And immediately the volcano stopped rumbling. <laughs> and they said, yes, that's what we wanted all along. None of these jewels, none of these... Now, why is that? Why didn't the girls just tell the boys to invite them to the party? Because if the boys invited the girls to the party merely as a way to fulfill their requests, in other words, out of sheer duty, it defeats the purpose, doesn't it? The point isn't for the girls to get the invitations, these two little bark backyardian girls said. The point is that the boys would actually be internally wanting to hang out with them, and that internal desire should then lead them to invite them without being needed to ask. If you invite us just because we asked you to, that misses the point. Look, Paul is saying here to Philemon in verse 9. If you forgive Onesimus, it's a command. It's a required command. But if you forgive Onesimus just because I told you to, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. That's not koinonia. See, verse 8 frees us from emotionalism, right? I can only move toward it when I feel like it. Verse 9 frees us from, let's call it, motionism. Motionism says, as long as I do the motions, that's good enough. Motionism allows Philemon to cop out from true koinonia and says, fine, fine. If you tell me to do it, Paul, God, if it's a required command for me to forgive Onesimus, you're forgiven, Onesimus. It's done. Don't worry about it. See, Paul, I did it. Are you happy now? Paul is saying, uh, no, I'm not. I'm not happy now. That's why for love's sake, I will not make you do it. Because the point isn't just the external act of forgiving, Paul says. The point, the command, is to feel such deep internal heart interchange with Anesimus that would lead you to then not keep him in the doghouse forever. So the first step to move towards koinonia is to realize what the God-given required command is. It's not just to say the words, it's okay, or I forgive you. But it's to deal with the true internal love with that person. How many of us 
are quick to say the words, I forgive you, to someone because we think it's the right thing to do. So you got to say it quickly, okay? But then every time you think about that person, a knot still appears in your chest. Every time you remember what happened, you still feel your shoulders tighten and your jaws clinch up. You've said it's okay, but when that person walks into the same room that you're in, you can't help but do an invisible eye roll. Paul is saying, you got to deal with that. That's what you got to deal with. And it's not optional. Christ did not recommend it. He commands it. Deal with that. So two, one, know what the command is. It's not just the external act. It's the internal koinonia you feel with that person. Two, see, you can't rush this. Paul in verses 11 to 13, we don't have to read uh, the verses, but he pretty much told Philemon, that Paul has the right to ask Onesimus to stay and serve him in prison because after all, Paul led Onesimus to Christ, so he has the right to do that by any spiritual reality, right? And Paul has the right to assume that Philemon would be totally okay if Paul borrowed his servant Onesimus because Paul led Philemon to Christ too. So Paul has all the right to ask Onesimus to stay, but verse 14, Paul says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. He's honing into this idea. You got to want it, Philemon. You got to want it. Any external act of service must be driven by an internal reality. That's where the fight toward holiness lies, not just in the external doing of things, but in the internal realities. That's the realm in which true sanctification happens, not just in the motions, but in your whole person. You see? has to be on the course. So one, remind yourself that it's not optional. It's required. It's a Christ-given command, not just to do the motions, but to get to a point of heart interchange with one another. You have not accomplished the requirement just because you say, I forgive you quickly. But then every time you think about that person, your heart crunches up, your shoulders tighten, you can't help to have an invisible eye roll. That's what you've got to work on. It's not optional. Two, because the area of holiness and growth is seen in the internal realities, not just the external, this forces you to be honest with yourself. Stop tricking yourself and brush your true feelings for someone under the rug with a broom of external niceties. Stop lying to yourself and sweep how you actually feel towards someone under the rug with the broom of your external niceties. You can't do that. You've got to deal with it. So how do you stop yourself from doing that? How do you actually deal with what you're actually feeling? And so you're, not, you're doing it not because you're compelled to, but because you want to. Three, you've got to do it in community. Look at verse one. Who is this letter directed to? To Philemon, yes, but also to Aphia, who is Philemon's wife, and Archippus, someone who is in a similar le level of leadership with, with Philemon, and to the whole church that met in his house. <laughs> Paul is pretty much assigning an accountability group for Philemon without his consent. <laughs> he puts his wife in there, he puts a fellow church leader in there, and he puts everyone in his house church in there. <laughs> and he says, move toward it, because it's not, it's, not a, it's not a recommendation. You gotta work to this. Find a group of friends in your gospel community who loves your, this is important, who loves your growth toward holiness more than they love your opinion of them. I'm gonna repeat that. Find a group of trusted, mature brothers and sisters in Christ in your community that loves your growth toward holiness more than they love your opinion of them. 
So when you complain about someone, they don't just affirm your frustrations all the time, you know, yeah, you should. No, but they want to move you towards koinonia. And look, I may have koinonia to family members and friends that aren't Christians. I may have um, uh, 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 koinonia with, with people who, um, like my family, my kids, my, my, my parents, my wife, but, but a Christian koinonia that we're called to do here um, is greater than that. It's not just for family, it's not just for friends, but who is this written to? Philemon is called to forgive an ex-servant who robbed him. There's a unique koinonia that we are called in the church to have because the worldview that we have is also unique. And the love that we have is also unique, okay? Um, there's a page missing in my notes, but I'm gonna go it off memory because I think this is important. And Gray's laughing because he knows I hate doing that. So a fourth thing, if you wanna move towards koinonia, okay? Look at, I think, is verses uh, 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 17 to 18 in, your, in, in, your, in, in the verses. No, I'm sorry, verses 15, 15 to 16 in your passage. The fourth thing you want to do, if you want to have koinonia, one, realize that the heart work is, the work is done in your heart, not just external niceties. Two, you got to be brutally honest with yourself, with where you are, and have a gospel community that also is honest with you. Um, and three, um, uh, if you want to go move towards koinonia, you have to start, you have to stop viewing social and relational conflict as if it's outside of God's will. Stop viewing relational conflict as if it's outside of God's will. Look at verses 15 to 16. Paul is saying something like this. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the notes. He's saying something like this. What if, what if, Philemon, the reason why Anesimus robbed from you is so that he can run away from you? And what if the reason why he ran away from you is that so he can eventually meet me in prison? And what if the reason why he meets me in prison is so he can come to Christ? And what if after he comes to Christ, you are to receive him back, not just as a, a servant, but as a fellow brother forever, something like that? What if, Paul is saying, that the relational conflicts you have in your life is not actually something that's outside of God's will? What if it's actually something God exactly wants you to deal with? What if... What if this is all done for uh, 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 Anesimus' salvation and for Philemon to be forced to grow in koinonia? What if all this was meant so that Paul would write a letter that will be sent to Philemon that would be in the canon of scripture that will be then be read by a bunch of churches, including this weird church like TCC, and we're all reading it together and we're studying. What if? What if that's what God wants? If you think relational conflict is actually something outside of God's will, you're never going to have the motivation to grow in koinonia. Stop viewing it as that. God's greater than that. He's in control of that. You see? So when it happens, deal with it. Ask yourself, what is going on? Why do I feel? It's been six months. Why do I still feel this? Be honest with it to yourself and to with your friends. Imagine that kind of community. Imagine that kind of community where what you see is what you get. Where people come to you not just saying the right things, but then behind you they talk all kinds of stuff. What if, what if they truly, what if they're, if they're not okay with you, they come up with you and they say this, hey, look, I know I've said I've forgiven you and I know I said it's okay, but really, I've looked at my heart for the past few months and I'm not okay. I'm just not there yet. I'm really sorry. I wanna move toward that, but I, I'm just not there. Would you forgive me and bear with me? 
as I move towards true forgiveness of you. Is that okay? Can you be patient with me? It doesn't mean you have to be fake all the time and say you're okay. No, but if you're not okay, what, what if you have that kind of community? Imagine the kind of intimacy and union you'll have with one another. You see, even with people who rob from you. So why, why do Christians have this command for koinonia, not only for our friends and family, but also for people who've wronged us? Because, because we have a foundation that is strong enough to help us to persevere in that. Point number three, the foundation for koinonia. Okay, the kind of koinonia Christians are expected to have, especially with one another, is unique. Why? Because the worldview that Christians have is also unique. What's so different about it? Take a look at what Paul says in verses 17 to 19. If you consider me your partner, receive him, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. You see koinonia there? If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, uh, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. What is Paul doing here? He's role-playing. <laughs> what role is he playing? He's playing the role of Jesus. Think about this. What happened on the cross? We are received by God, verse 17, because any wrongs that we did, verse 18, and all the death that we have towards God for our sins was charged to Jesus. Look at the end of verse 18. Paul says, any wrong that Philemon has, charge it to me. End of verse 19, I will pay it. What is that if not the clearest presentation of the gospel ever? After asking Philemon to do something unbelievably demanding, Paul ends the letter and motivates Philemon by setting a stage, okay? And the stage, this whole time, he's been setting a stage with actors in it. Philemon was the wronged one. Who is, who is the wronged one? Philemon is playing the role of God, of course, by way of analogy there. Anesimus is the guilty party, the sinful man, all of us, who has wronged God and robbed from God. Paul is Christ, who's willing to pay for Anesimus' sins and debt. Now, why did Paul do that? It's a subtle and not so subtle way of reminding Philemon of the gospel. Right now, Philemon, you're in the position, again, by analogy, of God. Who was wronged? And who is Anesimus is all of us. Anesimus is you, Philemon, before God, who's wronged God. Were you not forgiven by God, Philemon, because Christ paid for your debt? If you find that Philemon has debt, I'll pay it, Paul says. My pages are all over the place. So, see, why did Paul say this? Paul didn't say this just to guilt Philemon into it, okay? Paul didn't say this just to make him feel guilty. You know, Jesus died for you and, 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 and paid for your debt, so, so you better do the same to Anisimus. You know, if Paul went that route, that would not help Philemon grow in Koninonia. That would be the exact opposite. Paul goes even deeper. This is it. Look at how he's playing the role of Christ. It's very artful. Why does he, Paul, Christ, receive Anisimus, the sinner? Verse 17. Receive him and you would receive me. Sound familiar? Verse 20, receive, if you receive Anesimus, you'll benefit and refresh me. In other words, why did Paul, why was Paul led to want to pay for Anesimus' sins? Merely a sense of obligation? No. Verse 17, if you receive him, you receive me. If you bless him, you benefit 
me. The reason why Paul wanted to pay for Onesimus' sin is because Paul felt a sense of koinonia, an interchange of hearts with Onesimus. Receive him, you receive me. Accept him, I'm refreshed. I'll pay for what he owes because his joy is my joy. Friends, in the New Testament, when Paul was still a persecutor of the church, okay, in the book of Acts, and he killed a lot of Christians, and Jesus appeared to him and rebuked him, what did Jesus say to Paul when Paul was persecuting the church? Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Saul, Saul, remember, Saul, Paul is persecuting the church. Not, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus wasn't being, Jesus, Jesus wasn't being hurt. Paul wasn't beating Jesus up, like physically. But yet, as Paul hurts Jesus' people, Jesus is saying, why are you hurting me? Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If you care for a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus is saying, because he feels such union with his people, it's as if you're doing it to Jesus himself. Now, for some of us, that's more theologically bent. Don't get anxious. I'm not promoting some sort of pantheism or panentheism that says God and creature are all mixed up and God is in all of us and then there's like this weird... No, the creator-creature distinction has to be clear in the scriptures. I affirm that. Good, but you cannot deny that there is a sense of unity that our head Jesus Christ has with his people. What is done to them is done to him. So why was Paul willing to pay for Anemus' sin? Why was Jesus willing to pay for your sins on the cross? Just because of a sense of mere obligation? Do you think Jesus went on the cross just because he's going through the motions? Well, this is what I got to do, so I got to do it. <laughs> do you think um, that when he said the true shepherd loves his sheep so much so that he lays his life down for him, referring just to fulfilling moral obligations? No. Jesus died for his people because their salvation brings him joy. Koinonia. Philemon, you were once lost in sin. Paul's reminding us, friends, you are all once lost in sin. If you receive Christ today, you are once lost in sin. And if you haven't, you still are. And you've robbed God too, like Anesimus robbed Philemon. We've robbed God of his rightful rule over all creation. We fell into worship of other things. We've robbed God of his glory as creator. And not only that, it's worse. Anesimus robbed God and ran out of his house. We live in God's house and we kicked him out. <laughs> we live in his world as if it's ours. We're using his resources as if we're the ones who own it. We take our time and our life and our future and our relational decisions and everything we have and we say, I'm going to be the king of it. It's totally worse. <laughs> we take his stuff and kick him out. But he forgave you if you're in Christ. How? Because Jesus said what Paul said in verse 19, I will repay it. I will repay it even if it leads me to the cross. And imagine the scene here. I'm speculating here, but I think it's not too far-fetched. Philemon is reading this letter. Anesimus is there, eyes down, freaked out because he's done wrong, because Paul sent him to give this letter back to Philemon. Philemon looks up at Anesimus, and the words of Paul echoes in his head. Look at him, Philemon. What is the foundation of your worldview? What do you stand upon? The cross. So then live with integrity to that worldview. 
Do whatever you need to do to grow in koinonia for the sinner that has robbed you because Jesus has had koinonia for you and forgave you at his own expense. To bring that point home even more, he ends the letter in verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What you're about to do is really hard. We're commanded to have a sense of koinonia with one another, a sense of oneness, a heart interchange with one another, because that's what led Jesus to die for his people, for you. Do not be satisfied with mere niceties and external fabrications that'll kill the church, but work toward loving one another in community by viewing every conflict as an opportunity to move forward in this. Yes, even those who have wronged you, we have that unique command because we've received a unique love and we stand upon a unique worldview that God himself has paid for our sins. Push forward in this church. It's not optional. Push forward. And I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit as we do so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for viewing obedience to your law as merely an accomplishment of moral obligations. That it is, very much so. We don't deny that. But isn't it much greater, Father? We're called to love, deeply love one another. That's what's gonna cause us to not kill each other. It's not because murder is just a bad moral thing to do, but because I, why would I kill me? I love them. I'm, I feel united with them. And Father, let the union of Christ that is theologically and objectively true for all of your people because all of us have been washed by the same blood of Christ, are in one body under the same head of Christ. Let that objective theological truth be so real in our hearts that it doesn't just stay in our heads, but we actually feel it in our hearts. That we love one another as we love ourselves. Isn't that not the great commandment? Help us, Father. Be honest with each other where we are. And if we're not okay for us to approach the other person graciously and say, I'm not okay, and I'm sorry, I want to move toward it, but right now I'm not okay, will you bear with me? And have brothers and sisters in Christ who love us more than they love our opinion of them push us towards Christ, towards love. Be patient with us because this is not something that can be forced into, but yet must be done out of our own accord. In Jesus' name, we pray that we have this love that will then show the gospel to this dying world that desperately needs it, that we have a unique love that is not come from this world, but from you, and let them too fall in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us